from WJCT in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm Al Letson, and you are listening to Freestyle, a mixtape. So every episode of Freestyle, producer Sean Birch and I are mixing it up, taking stories from here, there, and everywhere, and serving it up to you in a mixtape. This week, we're devoting the entire show to one of my favorite podcasts, Life of the Law. Now, I fell in love with this podcast a while ago because they really dive into our legal system and turn it upside down to see how it works. And every episode is just so well produced. I love it. I love it. I love it. And what is a mixtape if you're not sharing the sounds you love, that would be the show, with the people you love, that would be you. So I've picked out some of my favorite episodes for your listening pleasure. First up, The Jury. Now, we we all think we know how juries work, but as Shannon Heffernan tells us in this piece, they actually have a little-known power to ignore the law and vote on their own instincts. Law is more than the policeman on the corner, more than the courthouse where our laws are enforced, more than the jail where lawbreakers are punished. In your whole community, there are customs and moral codes which guide your actions. What social controls affect you? So now we have this bizarre, weird, secret power. Trial judge doesn't have to tell you about it, then I sure can. The risk is uh, people get away with murder. I'm Shannon Heffernan, and this is Life of the Law. Paul Butler grew up in a black neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. He was a smart, talented kid and ended up going to Harvard Law School. When he graduated, he wanted to do something for communities like the one he grew up in. Black communities were besieged by crime. So he became a prosecutor. So I thought, I'm going to go in as this undercover brother, and I'm going to make a difference from the inside. But as a prosecutor, Butler had to put a lot of people behind bars. And it turned out that I was kind of good at that. (laughs) You know, I was like this, you know, this clean-cut black guy. And most of the jurors in D.C. were black. And they would just beam at me when I said, my name is Paul Butler. I represent the government. They'd almost do whatever I wanted. Almost. Except when it came to petty drug cases. Even when it was very clear someone was guilty, juries came back with an innocent verdict. Butler was confused. Why would they let someone they knew was guilty of a drug charge go free? Then, one day, he's prosecuting one of these cases. And the defense was something like, well, yeah, the police caught me with the drugs, but they weren't mine. And yeah, I was like, uh, okay. Um, you know, for the law, it actually doesn't matter. If the drugs are on you, it's what's called a strict liability crime. So you're guilty. So the judge told that to the jurors. Jury went out, they deliberated, and they came back with the big fat not guilty. I was like, oh, my God, what's up? So I was right out there um, outside the jury, the room where they come out, and none of the black jurors would talk to me. And the white woman stopped for a moment. And I said, what happened? And she said, we all knew he was guilty, but he's so young. Even if the jurors thought the boy was too young, the law was still the law. Butler asked the more experienced prosecutors what was going on. It turned out it had a name, jury nullification. When a jury nullifies, it finds a defendant innocent, although the jurors may actually believe he's guilty. 
And because it's illegal to retry someone, the person goes free. The prosecutors Butler talked to hated it. They thought it weakened the legal system. But nullification has played a big role in American history. Jurors used it all the way back during the Revolutionary War to free Americans who spoke out against the British, and during Prohibition to keep bootleggers out of jail. Most famously, it was used during slavery. Imagine you were a juror in 1850, and it was against the law to help a slave run away. And so jurors would often say, not guilty, even though these folks were 100% guilty. By the way, those jurors also helped uh, create the conditions that led to the abolition of slavery. And I ask folks now, well, what would you do? It seems like an easy answer. Slavery is wrong. But jury nullification has a dark side, too. I don't think anyone could really advocate for a system where the juries can do whatever they want to do. Jeff Kramer is the managing director of Kroll Investigations and has tried at least 100 jury trials. Kramer says juries have used nullification to do things we look back on as being right, but they've also used nullification to do things that were really wrong. Baller was so badly damaged that we couldn't hardly just tell who he was, but he happened to have on a ring with his initials. In August of 1955, two white men killed Emmett Till, a black 14-year-old who they said whistled at a white woman. We never have any trouble until some of our southern niggas go up north and the NAACP talks to them and they come back home. I'd like for the NAACP to know that we are here giving all parties a fair and impartial trial. The trial was not fair. The evidence was clear. Later, the two white defendants would even admit to the murder. But the all-white jury found the white defendants innocent. That was nullification, too. Again, Jeff Kramer. The risk is uh, people get away with murder. And they get away with murder because uh, the jury in those cases uh, regarded the defendants as more valuable than the victims. So if we allowed jury nullification, system's over. It doesn't work. It's broken. There is nobody who will tell you that the jurors are anything but serious and impressed with the magnitude of the task that they've been given. Sherry Diamond is a professor at Northwestern Law School. Jury deliberation is usually very private, but Diamond received rare permission to study them in action. Her conclusion? Nullification doesn't happen often. The jurors will say, boy, I sure don't agree with that law, but we have no choice. Of course, juries are a cross-section of society with all its flaws. But Diamond says you have to remember that in order to be on a jury, you have to first get through the selection process. That weeds out people with biases, people who might nullify. So the jury is us, but perhaps a better us. That better us will nullify in rare circumstances usually when our accepted morals don't match the letter of the law. One way of saying it is that this is a kind of safety valve for the system. And uh, we, we tolerate it. And there are, in fact, uh, court opinions that say specifically that the jury has no right to do it. But of course, we structurally build a system in which the jury has the power to do it. Jury nullification dates all the way back to common law. 
It was designed as a check and balance on the government's power. Paul Butler, the prosecutor who was having trouble getting guilty verdicts, thinks it may be the most direct form of democracy we have. Twelve people in a room charged with coming to a single conclusion. He left the prosecutor's office and became a professor at George Washington University. He now believes those jurors who nullified in all those drug cases were on to something. There are more blacks who are under criminal justice supervision now than there were slaves in 1850. Butler thinks drug laws are to blame for those high incarceration numbers. Statistically, there are less black drug users, but more blacks in prison for drugs. So just like jurors nullified the fugitive slave laws, Butler thinks modern jurors should nullify drug laws. Sometimes the law really is unfair, and sometimes jurors really should say that people are not guilty, even if they committed the crime, especially if it's a drug case, because the drug laws are selectively enforced, and I don't think it's fair. Now, despite the role nullification can play, chances are you haven't heard of it, and there's a reason for that. Most people in the legal system think juries shouldn't nullify. It's too dangerous. Still, they can't take away jurors' ability to nullify without taking away other basic rights enshrined in the Constitution. But there are three ways the legal system tries to discourage nullification. First, as a juror, you take an oath. Do each of you solemnly swear that you will render a true verdict according to the law and the evidence so help you God? Second, defense lawyers cannot tell jurors to nullify. They can only raise doubts that their client didn't commit the crime. Members of the jury, these are the facts. And I am confident today you will see this case is full of reasonable doubts. Third, most judges basically tell you not to nullify. It is your responsibility to decide what the facts of this case may be and to apply the law to those facts. So, juries may be able to nullify, but the system is set up to hide that. So now we have this bizarre, weird, secret power that one of my functions is, if the trial judge doesn't have to tell you about it, then I sure can. Butler tries to spread the word about nullification through speaking and writing. Another activist takes a more direct approach. Oh, I'm uh, Julian Heiklin. And I am the biggest pain in the ass in the world. Heiklin is a member of the Fully Informed Jury Association. Their goal is to make sure jurors know they can nullify. Heiklin stands outside courtrooms, handing out literature and talking to people. He thinks nullification is a good strategy for all kinds of laws he sees as being unfair, including gun laws. In August of 2011, the U.S. government charged Heiklin with jury tampering, a serious offense. The case got a lot of attention especially when the judge denied Heiklin a jury trial. After all, it would be just another opportunity for him to tell jurors how to nullify. But if the courts want to keep this jury nullification thing on the down low, then Heiklin says the joke has been on them. So, th- so they've made a national issue out of this. They've done something that I could have never done by myself. This is all over the country. All of a sudden, I've become a major public figure and... I'm just a shabby old man with a few ridiculous pamphlets. They're handing out the biggest pamphlet ever. Of course, they're handing out the biggest pamphlet ever. Since I spoke with Heiklin, the case has been dropped. 
He plans to be outside courtrooms again soon, for better or worse, making the secret power of nullification a little less secret. This piece from Life of Law was produced by Nancy Mullane and Shannon Heffernan, with assistance from Thomas Helbink and Julia Barton. You can learn more about it at their website, lifeofthelaw.org. You're listening to Freestyle, a mixtape. I'm Al Letson, and you'll be hearing more from Life of the Law right after a short break. You're listening to Freestyle, a mixtape. I'm Al Letson, and today we're listening to pieces from one of my favorite podcasts, Life of the Law. On every episode, they look at our legal system and try to figure out how it works by exploring one particular topic. Over the past several decades, one of the biggest things affecting our legal system has been a revolution in forensic science, with things like DNA testing becoming more advanced and accurate. But as Michael May tells us in this next piece, there's one field of forensics that's recently been called into question. Mr. Chief Justice, it pleases the court. And people were saying, John, you're taking away our tools. And I said, you know, the tools don't work. They're, they're, it's all made up. This is Life of the Law. I'm Michael May. Here's some advice that I hope you're not looking for. If you want to kill someone and get away with it, you might try burning their house down. Not only are fires notoriously deadly, but it's possible to commit the crime and destroy all the evidence at the same time. So it's not surprising that law enforcement began to look for clues in the smoldering remains of homes, patterns that might tip them off to the cause and origin of the fire. These observations were passed on from investigator to investigator, and a consensus emerged. It became the forensic science of fire investigations, and it helped solve crimes. Um, you know, in arson cases, the scientific evidence tends to be quite central to the case. Jennifer Lauren is a law professor at the University of Texas. You know the structure burned down. It's gone. There is a fire. Nobody disputes that. But how did it burn down? Usually nobody's there to, to, to say, right? There usually aren't witnesses to these crimes. And what the scientific evidence permitted the state to do in, in these arson cases is to say that this was no accident. We know that someone came in and intentionally set this house on fire. These scientific techniques were based on years of observations, but they'd never been subjected to the scientific method. And that's turned out to be a problem, a big problem. Let's look closely at one case where investigators relied heavily on scientific evidence. It was a grisly fire in 1986 in Waco, Texas. It left two young boys dead in a backyard shed. Their stepfather, Ed Graff, was charged with setting the fire. Reporter Dave Mann has spent years following this case, as well as several other arson investigations. He's the editor of the Texas Observer. So the prosecution's version is that Ed Graff left work early on August 26, 1986. He picked up his two stepsons from daycare. He told his wife to stay at work late. They got home about 4.40 in the afternoon. Ed Graff rendered the boys unconscious, 
drag them from the house into this small wood shed in the backyard. He poured gasoline around near the door, closed the door, locked it, went back to the house. 4.55, flames engulfed the shed, burned in almost nothing in minutes. One of the most damning pieces of evidence in the case was the fact that Ed had taken out insurance policies on the boys about a month before the fire. Ed Graff was a mild-mannered banker, not the first guy you'd peg as a homicidal killer, but prosecutors made him out as a Jekyll and Hyde, a man who was seething inside at his stepsons. He believed they were coming between him and his wife, Claire. So Claire testified at the trial. She said, He never said one time that he was sorry the boys were dead, or he was sorry that they were gone. He never expressed himself in that manner at all. Later the next day, after the fire, he said, What's changed now since the boys are gone? And I just looked at him with my mouth hanging down, and I said, Everything's changed. And he said, I just thought something like this would bring us closer together. And then prosecutors brought in an expert from the fire marshal's office. He pointed to burn patterns from the shed to prove the prosecution's theory. Alligatoring charring, which is charring that kind of looks like the scales of an alligator. The investigator said that was the result of an intense gasoline fire. The floor had been completely burned through. And that told him that the fire had been set with gasoline. A V burn pattern. V shaped pattern that pointed to the origin of the fire. Literally pointed. And finally, the boys had been found dead on their backs. That indicated that the boys were unconscious when the fire had started. And if you're the jury and you're hearing that from this forensic expert, that's pretty convincing. The jury found Ed Graff guilty. He's been in prison for the past 25 years. But his story isn't over yet. To understand why, we have to look at another case from a few years after the Graff fire. This case led to an experiment with wide repercussions for arson investigations. It's known as the Lime Street Fire. In 1990, Gerald Lewis was charged with capital murder for setting a fire in Jacksonville, Florida that killed six people. The victims included his wife and stepchildren. Investigators thought Lewis had set the fire, and they pointed to fire patterns in the house to prove their case. The evidence was very similar to the Graff fire, including deep charring of a hardwood floor and a blaze that burned suspiciously fast. And just like Graff, Gerald Lewis argued that one of his kids had set the fire by accident. The prosecution called national fire expert John Lentini to Florida. Lentini agreed it looked like arson, but he couldn't find any traces of gasoline. So the prosecutors decided to definitively prove their version of events. They took an identical house down the street, filled it with the exact same type of furniture, and they set it on fire. Lentini picks up the story. We just said, let's test the hypothesis that this was a child play fire setting, like the defendant said. So we lit the couch on fire. Fire investigators, when they're testifying in cases, they'll say, fire burns up and out. Well, it does that, but only until it reaches the ceiling. And then it begins to behave entirely differently. 
you can quickly generate heat release rates on the order of three megawatts. And to put that in context, your average portable space heater is 1.5 kilowatts. So multiply that by 2,000. You can see a video of this online. It's stunning to watch. As soon as the couch is set on fire, a black cloud of hot gas starts to collect at the ceiling. This cloud descends until all at once, everything in the room bursts into flames. This moment is called flashover. I had expected that the fire would take on the order of at least 10 to 15 minutes before it would make the transition to flashover. The room went to flashover somewhere around four minutes. And there was charring in the doorway, there was charring in the hallway, and it looked just like the house where the people died. It went like the defendant said. After this test, I, I said to the prosecutor, I said, I can't give that deposition tomorrow. I had been on the verge of making a very serious error by testifying against Gerald Lewis. Uh, what we know now is that if you let it burn for three minutes beyond flashover, it's almost impossible to tell where in the room the fire started. And people were saying, John, you're taking away our tools. And I said, you know, the tools don't work. They're, they're, it's all made up. This is a reality that uh, many fire investigators are still uh, in denial about. This experiment happened more than 20 years ago, and the lessons learned from it are now well established. But it's proven extremely difficult to reopen old arson convictions. Most famously, there's the case of Cameron Todd Willingham. He was convicted in Texas in 1992, after investigators used faulty evidence to conclude he set a fire that killed his children. Over the years, scientists have reviewed that evidence, and they've concluded the fire was probably accidental. But it didn't make a difference. Willingham was executed in 2004. Things have started to change. After an official state investigation of Willingham's case, the Texas Fire Marshal's Office and the Innocence Project of Texas began to work together. They took a fresh look at arson convictions in the state, including the Ed Graff case. Reporter Dave Mann explains. The burn patterns don't tell you anything about how the fire in that shed started. All they tell you is that the wood in that shed was subjected to a very intense fire, and we know that. We also know that gasoline, contrary to the testimony at Ed Graff's trial, does not burn through wood floors. In fact, and these experiments have been done, if you light gasoline on fire on a wood floor, it'll leave some surface burning, but it'll never burn through because it's actually the fumes of the gasoline that are burning, and that is actually above the wood floor and will not burn through it. Not only that, but fire experts agree that the door to the shed had to have been open or there wouldn't have been enough air in the shed to have gone to flashover. But the most compelling new evidence came from a fire investigator named Doug Carpenter. My opinion in this case, based on the evidence and analysis, is this was an accidental fire. Carpenter has helped develop a new technique for investigating fires. You might think that when someone dies in a fire, it's usually from the flames themselves. Not true. Most victims die from smoke inhalation. He focused on blood tests taken from the Graff boys. 
When they died, their blood was saturated with carbon monoxide. Carpenter says that shows the fire could not have happened the way prosecutors said it did. In a hot-burning gasoline fire, the boys would have died from the heat before the carbon monoxide levels in their blood got that high. So that disproves that particular hypothesis. Carpenter says the unusually high carbon monoxide levels in the boys' blood shows that the fire could have only happened in one particular way. The fire would have had to have gone to flashover to create enough carbon monoxide to kill them that quickly. Before flashover, there's enough oxygen in the shed, and the carbon monoxide turns to carbon dioxide, which is harmless. But if the entire shed went to flashover with the boys still alive, then it's just like the gasoline fire. The flames would have killed them before the carbon monoxide. So Carpenter put together an alternative theory. He says the boys must have lit the fire in a small compartment in the shed. We can create flashover conditions in smaller compartments within a room. We can create it in the knee hole of a desk. We can create it under a coffee table. We can create it underneath a sofa. I call it a room within a room. Carpenter has seen a case where four people died after a kitchen cabinet caught on fire and went to flashover. The victims weren't hurt by the heat. The fact is, the objects in our home are much more dangerous, toxic, and flammable than fire investigators used to believe. Carpenter says the Graf fire went like this. At 4.40, Graf and the kids arrived home. Graf stayed in the house, and the boys went out to play, just like Graf said they did. The two boys went into the shed and lit a fire. They likely lit it on a shelf or underneath an upholstered chair that was in the shed, any place where there was a small compartment with the ceiling and three sides. Inside that small compartment, the fire went to flashover. It grew big enough that it no longer had enough oxygen to burn efficiently. It started releasing high levels of carbon monoxide into the air at the rate of more than 10,000 parts per million. You can only survive that level of carbon monoxide for a couple minutes. At 4.55, the boys were already unconscious, on their backs. Carpenter testified at a hearing of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They overturned Ed Graff's conviction. He'll be getting a new trial. But Graff is only one of a small handful of cases across the country getting a new look. Although bad arson science was used in other convictions, possibly hundreds of them. But as University of Texas law professor Jennifer Lauren explains, courts aren't really set up to reevaluate scientific evidence. The question becomes sort of how far does the consensus have to have shifted in order to indicate that you have new evidence of innocence? Um, what if the individual expert who testified at trial maintains their view about the state of the science, even while all the ex other experts in the world um, have changed their mind. Well, would all of those other experts make a difference in the, the, the jury's assessment of the evidence? These are the kinds of sort of reverse engineering of the jury's decision that defendants have to, have to do. Um, it's very, very difficult to prevail. Defendants have to prove that a jury never would have convicted them without the faulty scientific testimony. That's a high hurdle to clear. And that could explain why prosecutors have decided to retry Ed Graff rather than just let him go. On the one hand, the original scientific evidence has been completely discredited, and the defense will bring in a national expert who can talk in detail about carbon monoxide hemoglobin levels and localized flashover, and show the fire was likely an accident. On the other hand, prosecutors still have a grieving mother, 
convinced her ex-husband is a cold-blooded killer. As with the first trial of Ed Graff, the jury will not be scientific experts themselves. They will ultimately have to decide who to believe. For Life of the Law, I'm Michael May. This piece from Life of the Law was produced by Michael May, Nancy Mullane, Shannon Heffernan, Julia Barton, Caitlin Prest, Ashley Ann Krigbaum, with assistance from Mary Atkins. Music by Caitlin Prest. You can learn more from their website at lifeofthelaw.org. You're listening to Freestyle, a mixtape. I'm Al Letson, and we will be mixing it up with more Life of the Law right after this short break. Welcome back to Freestyle, a mixtape. I'm Al Letson, and today we are mixing up pieces from one of my favorite podcasts, Life of the Law. So they tell stories about the American legal system, all the ins and outs and how it works. Now in this next piece, which is one of my favorites, we deal with lawyer advertisements. You've seen them before. When things go bad, all you need to do is pick up the phone and call. Or so the late night ads on TV tell us. Since the U.S. Supreme Court allowed lawyers to advertise in the 1970s, the practice has skyrocketed, often with shoddy results. Are tacky lawyer ads bringing down the profession or simply making it more accessible to those who might not otherwise know an attorney? Producer Sean Cole takes a look. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. What I would call the halcyon days of positive public perception of attorneys seem to be long gone. What most people see, unfortunately, is this unsavory advertising, and they base their opinions on lawyers on that advertising. Have you been hurt in a car accident? Blah, 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 blah. This is attorney blah, blah. Brown and Groupin. Phillips and Associates. Lowell the Hammer Stanley. And I'll get you lots of money for your blah, blah injuries. Broken bones, burns, paralysis. Victims, victims, victims. Call me. Call me. Call now. Call me right now. 459-CASH. This is, sorry, this is Life of the Law. I'm Sean Cole. And I don't know about you, but I've always been so impressed by lawyer commercials on TV And by impressed, I mean totally confused. Mostly I'm talking about the homegrown ones that look like they were made by a high school AV class. I'm always just like, who told you that disaster footage or wooden readings from cue cards or your cousin wearing a judge's robe would be a great way to represent your law practice? And that's, frankly, all I planned to do for this episode was point and laugh like a jerk, and it was going to be pretty simple. But then somewhere along the way, I stumbled behind the curtain into the engine room of lawyer advertising regulation and learned about the silent era before these ads were even allowed and the big bang after which they couldn't be contained and the subtle, possibly endless civil war in lawyer nation over how and even whether attorneys should advertise their services. And I'll get to all of that in a minute. But first, (laughs) I do. I just want to play you some of my favorites. If you've been in an auto accident, here are a few important tips. So these are the kinds of commercials you see at 3 in the morning on basic cable when everything is going wrong in your life. 
Most of them are of the personal injury variety. Guys, usually guys, who promise to battle the heartless tightwad insurance companies on your behalf. You've got your sort of central casting lawyer in front of a bookshelf for whom every syllable and hand gesture is a hurdle. We understand the serious effects that an auto accident can have on your life. But then you have your performers. Size matters. The bigger your check, the better. I'm Lowell, the Hammer Stanley. I love Lowell, the Hammer Stanley. <laughs> there, there are images of airborne cars engulfed in flames playing behind him right now. I don't stop hammering until the size of your check satisfies you. Call me and let's talk about size. Lowell, the Hammer Stanley. There's actually more than one hammer in this tool bench. I'm Jim Adler, the Texas Hammer. I avenge injustice for the injured, the mistreated, and the ignored. Jim There's Adler. even more than one hammer named Jim. I'm Jim the Hammer Shapiro. I swear to God I thought this one was a joke. I cannot rip out the hearts of those who hurt you. I cannot hand you their severed heads. But I can hunt them down and settle the score. So those are the Crusaders. I mean, it's still all about money, but, uh, you know, they have a Captain America protector quality about them. In a few of these things, though, it's just pure, unfettered crassness. I was in pain, and I called Spencer and Associates, and he changed my pain to rain. At which point, money falls all over her body. Usually only happens in the strip club. The pain to rain alchemical process is fundamental to lawyer television. Your injury is a commodity. And apparently, cashing in is a frickin' cinch. Call me. It's just that easy. Call me. Call me. It's, it's just, just that, that easy. easy. Call one eight seven seven c brad And, you know, look, I grant you, these things are, they're almost majestically terrible, right? This is Bob Garfield, co-host of the NPR WNYC show On the Media. For 25 years, he was the ad critic for Advertising Age magazine. There is no attempt for subtlety... It is the hard sell. There have been a few of these lawyers over the years who have tried to be funny. You know, a lot of personal injury lawyers sometimes, um, in order to cast themselves in their own ads, will do some sort of, you know, uh, nominally comic scenario that they're a star of. How can you tell when a lawyer is lying? When his lips are moving. That is funny and lawyer jokes are great. But let's get serious. Uh, but basically, it's, you know, the key words are, call now. Call the Rely On group now. Because, like, obviously the, the cynical view is, like, here are some sharp... Call the Goldwater Law Firm now. <laughs> if you or a loved one has had a Depew hip replacement, call the Goldwater Law Firm right now. You know, I have a certain grudging respect. Having looked over and over and over for 25 years at extremely artful executions of fairly obscure creative ideas. I am so delighted <laughs> to see somebody saying, I got something to sell. I think you should buy it. Call now. You know, it's honest. It's honest. Now, sometimes of dubious legality because the ads themselves frequently skirt uh, the legality of solicitation. Different jurisdictions have have different rules. This is what I was talking about in the beginning. Rules regarding what you can and can't say in an ad, who can appear in your ad, and what they're allowed to say about you. All of that is regulated to tighter or looser degrees by each individual state bar association and state supreme court. Because, as proven by history, lawyers will tout themselves exactly as loudly as they're allowed to. 
See, back in the 19th century, you'd see ads for attorneys on the front page of newspapers, alongside ads for doctors and saddle and harness manufacturers. Abraham Lincoln advertised in the paper. But in 1908, the American Bar Association put in new rules saying all instances of self-laudation, that's what they called it, self-laudation, defy the traditions and lower the tone of our high calling and are intolerable. Business cards were okay. That ban lasted about 70 years. And then in 1976, the law clinic of Bates and Osteen ran one little classified in the Arizona Republic saying, Do you, Do you need, need a lawyer? lawyer? Legal services at very reasonable fees. Divorce or legal separation. Bates and Osteen. In short, the Arizona bar got mad and suspended the two lawyers. For like a week, it wasn't much of a suspension. Bates and Osteen appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in the now infamous Bates versus State Bar of Arizona, the court ruled that lawyers have the same freedom of speech as everybody else. Gavel, gavel, lawyers can advertise. Then all hell broke loose. That pretty much opened up the floodgates. This is Elizabeth Tarbert, the ethics counsel for the Florida Bar. She runs the department that regulates lawyer advertising there. There was kind of a wild, wild west situation where lawyers were advertising any way they wanted because there weren't regulations, where there had been just flat-out prohibitions. So Florida actually um, had a couple of different Blue Ribbon Commissions, and they adopted the first set of rules And because bar leadership was very concerned about what they saw out there, what, what statements lawyers were making in their advertisements to try to get clients. Florida has some of the strictest guidelines in the country for these ads. For instance, testimonials, if a lawyer writes the testimonial him or herself, that would be misleading. That's mm -hmm. not the person's actual experience. If it's not the person's actual experience with a lawyer, or they're not qualified to judge the lawyer, then those things would be misleading. Now, think of how many lawyer commercials you've seen that use testimonials. The insurance company kept asking me to hurry up and sign a release. I was thinking, what's the rush? Of course some of them are written by the attorneys, or their advertising consultants. Oftentimes the actual client doesn't even appear in the ad. I'm Jason Smith. He is not Jason Smith. He's an actor performing a testimonial, which is also prohibited in Florida. Yeah, that would just be false and misleading. That actor doesn't have the ability to judge the lawyer. They never had that experience. Nor are you allowed in Florida to have actors playing authority figures, like cops and judges, saying how great the lawyer is. Nor are you allowed to have actual cops and judges saying how great the lawyer is. People inherently respond to authority figures, whether they're real or not. So we prohibit their use in advertisements. Does Robert Vaughn fall under that category? I wouldn't consider Robert Vaughn an authority figure. He's an actor. But he would fall within the prohibition in the same rule about using the voice or image of a celebrity. Tell the insurance companies you mean business. Tell Again, kind of pervasive in other states. They go after your rights piece by piece by piece until justice has been served, or they'll be in court. Elizabeth Tarbert says the rules are meant to protect the public, that people should pick a lawyer based on what she calls objective selection criteria, rather than fancy pants promises and sound effects. If you break the rules, the penalties are not really that dramatic. The worst that might happen is that you'll get what's known as a public reprimand. The bar sends out a press release, so your reputation is kind of marred, but it's not like you're gonna be disbarred. So that's Florida. There are a few other states that are strict. Iowa, 
and Texas, weirdly, given that it's home to one of the hammers. I'm Jim Adler, the Texas hammer. When stingy insurance companies don't pay up, I get meaner than a junkyard dog. I don't growl or bark, I bite. Massachusetts and Connecticut are still pretty wild westy. And it's one thing when you're a lawyer practicing in a relatively strict state or a relatively loose state, you probably know what's expected of you. But if you're a national firm operating in a bunch of jurisdictions, you have to comply with multiple sets of rules. That's what Lucian Perra has to deal with. He's a lawyer with Adams and Reese in Memphis. And among other things, he advises nationwide firms on their advertising. And sometimes he'll be looking over the disclaimer rules, for example, and he'll be like, Okay. State A says you got to say this, but State B, if I say what State A says, State B is going to say, well, I can't say exactly that. So I got to weave it together somehow. It is a morass. Mm. It does what it's, I think, in my opinion, intended to do, which is it deters um, lawyer advertising to some significant extent. Now, Lucian's state, Tennessee, is pretty loose. In fact, it's been widely reported of late as the state where you'll see lawyer ads featuring space aliens, giant robots, and both dogs and cars that can talk. Guys, come here. Huh? All the cars in town are talking about you. Talking cars. They say you're the go-to guys for car wrecks. And even now, more than 35 years later, Lucian says there's a cohort of lawyers who will see an ad like that and say, Look what Bates versus State Bar of Arizona hath wrought. There are many lawyers today, many lawyers today, who feel that much that was that is wrong with the profession today, if not all that is wrong with the profession today, dates from Bates. That lawyer advertising turned us from a, a profession into a business, and they just think it's undignified for lawyers to be on television pitching their services generally, much less talking to dogs or aliens. They just <laughs> think that demeans the profession. And you don't have to look too far down the road in Tennessee to find one of those lawyers, namely Matt Hardin, a personal injury attorney in Nashville with his own practice. I'm sorry, I've got a big bunch on this. The first half of it's about the history of history of advertising. Last year, he and the Tennessee Association for Justice, which is a group of plaintiff's lawyers, filed two petitions to the state Supreme Court asking them to change the advertising rules in Tennessee so that they essentially look more like the ones in Florida. There was a public comment period, some First Amendment advocates got involved, and ultimately, the court said no. But Matt Harden is going to keep trying, he says. And I asked him. And, and so do you think Bates was the sort of the beginning of the end, like the, the Big Bang that created the downfall of the sort of stature of lawyers? I do. I mean, if you look in the, you know, in our history in the 50s and 60s, you had lawyers being seen as a uh, proponents of justice. You know, you have things as far back as like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. But those, uh, what I would call the halcyon days of p- positive public perception of attorneys seem to be long gone. What most people see, unfortunately, is this unsavory advertising, and they base their opinions on lawyers on that advertising. Um, but my, you know, my biggest concern about this is how it affects the jury pool and makes people think that you're just out for easy money. That is, if people start thinking plaintiffs and their attorneys are just out for easy money, they might get cynical about the process. And cynical people become cynical jurors, and no one gets a fair trial anymore. That's the calculus. And by the way, Matt's not opposed to advertising writ large. Um, I advertise myself. Though not on TV. No, I advertise in movie theaters. You advertise in movie theaters? I do. And online. His ads sound like this. What to do after an accident? Call Matt Hardin Law, your experienced personal injury law firm. So you know, 
very different tone. And visually, too. They're just images of gavels and ionic columns and mat in this ad, which makes you wonder if maybe there's not something more basic about his objections to the dog and robot commercials. Is it just that you think the ads aren't classy? No. I don't think it's up to me or anyone else to make a judgment over what what the class of an ad is. But do you think they're not classy? Um, I don't have an opinion on that one way or another. I mean, that's not really what I'm trying to... Really? Because I think all of us have an opinion on that one way or the other. (laughs) Even Lucian Perra thinks those ads could use some sprucing. I'm all in favor of great production values for lawyer TV ads. I am foursquare in favor of it. The question is whether you can mandate it by law. And in case this wasn't clear by now, he is decidedly not one of the lawyers who thinks Bates versus State Bar of Arizona besmirched lawyerdom. I start from the premise that, well, lawyer advertising is protected speech. It just is. So if it is, then what are you going to do? You're going to act like a grown-up, acknowledge, and particularly since you are lawyers, you're going to act like a grown-up, recognize the First Amendment means what it says, and that therefore lawyers can advertise. And move on. You're, you're making me realize that it's the lawyers making the ads, it's the lawyers complaining about the ads, and it's the lawyers making the rules about what ads are okay and not okay. Correct. And not only that, not only that, I would challenge you to find a single, and probably somebody can find a single one, but a single complaint to a bar disciplinary group about a lawyer ad that comes from a client. They are as rare as hen's teeth. That's not where they come from. In other words, complaints to the authority, the regulatory authority that might lead to the lawyer being disciplined, that kind of real complaint, Mm. they don't come from clients. They don't come from members of the public. They just don't. They come from lawyers, and they come from competitors almost exclusively. And at bottom, says Lucian Perra, this really is a competitive issue. Not to say there aren't lawyers who genuinely think all of the silly advertising is bad for the profession and bad for the public. He knows that's true. At the same time, the same thing holds true for lawyering as for every other product or service. Namely, if you use flames and shouting and cash registers in your commercials, those ads are probably going to work. They do work, yes. They do work for those that they appeal to. This is Lowell the Hammer Stanley. I am the hammer. They are the nails. Wow. That is, it's just, it's just like watching YouTube. I don't think I mentioned, Lowell the Hammer Stanley practices in Norfolk, Virginia. He's been a lawyer for more than 30 years. And truthfully, I was a little nervous about asking him what the hell was up with his ads. But he answered the question before I even got to it. I mean, the ads are, the ads are not uh, sophisticated. I'm glad that you know that. (laughs) (laughs) I... If I saw my ad, me, personally, mm-hmm. I would never call me. Really? Yes. The ads do not appeal to me. They are over the top, and some might even consider them tasteless. But, but uh, they are not designed to appeal to people like me who listen to NPR and watch uh, <laughs> uh, PBS. They're, they're, they are uh, designed to appeal to people to, uh, who watch uh, shows like um, uh, Jerry Springer. Or, or things like that, who are good and fine and decent people, uh, and uh, but they are used to uh, commercials, and uh, they bought a lawyer's going to fight for them, and uh, that's what those ads are, are designed to appeal to. It sounds a little like a class distinction. 
Well, the answer, it, it, it may be considered a class distinction. Uh, if you are an educated person who's a PhD or a banker or you, you don't need to get your lawyer from, a, from, a, from an ad. You have a friends. You know somebody. You, you, you have a family lawyer. You go to them. This, this designed for hardworking, uh, blue-collar, uh, bus driver, the little league coach, uh, somebody who's, who's hurt and doesn't know where to turn, doesn't have a lawyer, and is afraid of lawyers, and wants somebody who's going to fight for him. That, that's what, what they're designed to appeal to. But I have to say, I think his and all of the ads have started appealing to me in a different way, and not the holier-than-thou, hipster, ironic way like before. Maybe it's just a survival technique from having watched so, so many of them so many times over, but I think I actually genuinely like a lot of them now. Whatever the case, I've started rooting for the hammers of the world and wishing that I had their kind of stuff. Attention, accident victim, victim, victim. If someone, somewhere, owes you big, big money, it pays to hire a heavyweight, a heavyweight. I'm Lowell, the Hammer Stanley. Four, five, nine. If I called myself the Hammer and screamed and had flaming blazing behind me, would that be okay there? Uh. I think there are aspects of that that are not objectively verifiable, which is required under our rules. Mm-hmm. That you hammer them. That's that's a subjective term. That's not an objective term. Right. We, I can't prove that I hammer. I hammer. I hammer them. Hammer them. Hammer them. You don't want to see it done. You don't want to see it done. Hammer them. Hammer them. Hammer them. Hammer those. I am the hammer. They are the nails. I hammer them nearly every day. Every day. For life of the law. I'm Sean, the Hammer, Cole. This piece from Life of the Law was produced by Sean Cole, Shannon Heffernan, Nancy Mullane, Julia Barton, Caitlin Prest, and Ashley Ann Krigbaum, with assistance from Mary Atkins and Tom Helbing. Music by Kyle Keplin, Todd McDonald, and Matthew Darr. Now you can check out more from Life of the Law at lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Al Letson, and you're listening to Freestyle, a mixtape. This show is produced by Sean Birch and myself. Special thanks to the entire Life of the Law team and PRX, the public radio exchange. Life of the Law is supported by the Open Society Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and Making Contact. So that's it for us today. Tune in next week where we will be mixing it up, bringing you stories from across public media and whatever else pops into my mind. That's Freestyle, a mixtape, here on 89.9 WJCT. You don't want to see it done. Make the call. Make the call. Four, five, nine. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the Awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.